one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode: Mormonism debate, RFM versus the Midnight Mormons. The highlights reel. It's been almost a year and a half now, as of today's date, April twenty third, two thousand and twenty three, since I flew down to Salt Lake City for a debate with the Midnight Mormons. Yes, it was me on one side of the stage and on the other side, arrayed against me, were all three of the Midnight Mormons, Cardinalis, Kwaku L, and Brad Whitbeck. Sean McCraney was nice enough to host and MC and moderate the event at his church. The Midnight Mormons, for their part, appeared to be extremely concerned about security, bringing some guys in to make sure that everybody who came into the building, into the church, was actually free of weapons. And as if that were not enough security, all three of the Midnight Mormons wore bulletproof vests over their clothes so that everybody could see that they were really, really worried about their safety. On the front of each of their bulletproof vests was Velcroed an American flag patch. Unfortunately, it was Velcroed on backward, which fact I brought to the attention of Cardinellus at one point during the debate. And Cardinellus will give an elaborate explanation as to why it is he's wearing the American flag backward on his bulletproof vest, an explanation that many, many people who have served in the armed forces contacted me afterwards and let me know in no uncertain terms that Cardinalis was totally blowing smoke. He had absolutely no idea about how it was to wear the American flag and that, in fact, he was wearing it backward on his bulletproof vest. For the record, I will let you know that there was not one person who had served in the armed forces who contacted me to tell me that Cardinalis was right. Now, I want to stress that this is not, repeat, not the entire debate. The entire debate runs two hours and 48 minutes. This is simply a highlight reel. And this highlight reel is going to run more in the neighborhood of an hour. I've tried to take the very best parts of the debate, make clips of them, and I will be presenting those to you tonight in this podcast. I am going to let the clips run with as little commentary for myself as possible. I think it's the most effective that way. And for me, listening back on these clips, I had an exhilarating time reliving the debate. In fact, reliving the high points of the debate. This is, for me, the fastest hour to listen to in podcast history. I hope you like it. Here now is the highlight reel from the debate. November 13th, 2021, Radio Free Mormon versus the Midnight Mormons. Do you believe that trusting in the origin story of the book does harm to those who accept the message? And if so, how and why? And if not, then why criticize the book at all? And also, do you believe that the LDS Church has been disingenuous to its members about the Book of Mormon and uh, mainly the translation events? Well, let me start off by saying that I prayed my way through the Book of Mormon when I was 19 years old, and the Holy Ghost bore record to me in an unmistakable way that every single word in that book was the Word of God. And yet here I am today. And that's because after 40 years of studying, of praying, of researching, of frankly trying my best I think I got the gold medal in mental gymnastics for many, many years until finally it became exhausting to me. But I will answer your question. First off, with the Book of Mormon, I view it as scripture. But I do not view I don't view it as scripture to everybody. I still find things in it that are valuable. 
and I appreciate the fact that other people find things in it that are valuable too. I would not try and take that away from them. However, demonstrably, the Book of Mormon is not historical. It is very clearly a product of early 19th century America from the very beginning to the very end of it. And so the way that Joseph Smith portrays the coming forth of the Book of Mormon ends up being inextricably linked with its historicity. If he had said that he had found some plates somewhere, like the Kinderhook plates, and uh, he translates them, and then it's the Book of Mormon, then it could just be scripture without being historical, I think. Unfortunately, Joseph Smith has a story about an angel coming to him in 1823 and then every year thereafter on the autumnal equinox named Moroni in almost every account. And this angel says he is the last of these Nephite prophets. And this is one of the problems because the historicity of the Book of Mormon ends up being really, for most members, completely tied with whether it is true or whether it is inspired or whether it is scripture. Now getting to the last part about, uh, oh yes, the church has been so disingenuous with everybody about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And at the time that Joseph Smith translated it, everybody around him knew exactly what was going on. They knew that he was taking his seer stone which he had used in multiple treasure digs throughout the decade of the 1820s. He was very popular. I'm not sure he ever found anything, but he always had a good story as to why it was that he didn't find the treasure. And he kept people wanting to find that treasure. I think of it as the 1820s version of the, the lotto. You always hear about people winning it, but maybe you don't actually know anybody. So you want to go out there and you want to try and find it. Well, the church has known this forever, that this is how he dictated the Book of Mormon. And yet for the last century, until the essays, until the word got out, until the word got out, they have portrayed it as Joseph Smith looking at the plates themselves and translating the actual characters that were actually written on the plates. And then, when the word got out to too many people, what's my time, Sean? You're doing good. When the word got out to too many people, it achieved critical mass that people were finding out that actually Joseph Smith was taking his seer stone that he used in treasure digs, putting it in his hat, putting his face over the hat, by the way, the exact same thing he did when he was trying to locate treasure, exactly the same modus operandi. And then he's dictating the text of the Book of Mormon out of his hat. The church has known that since the very beginning. And yet, it was only when it achieved critical mass and too many people knew about it that 2015 comes along and they take the seer stone out of the church historian's vault where the church had had it. They knew it was there. They bring it out for a photo op. I think it was the October Enzyme magazine. And then they put it back in the safe. So they knew, and then when they find out, the members find out that the church hasn't been straight with them, then what the leaders do is they blame the artists. You all have heard that, right? Oh, well, that's those artists' fault. We got some rogue artists out there who are uh, painting pictures that have nothing to do with how the Book of Mormon was translated and somehow sneaking them into the pages of the Enzyme, into the Sunday school lessons, everywhere. They're on the meeting house walls, or at least they used to before they started focusing on Jesus. You know, this is a real, uh, these are the real Gadianton robbers, is the artists, okay? And then they blame the artists, it's their fault, and then we are in the clear in some way. No, they have been totally disingenuous about the way the Book of Mormon was translated. They got caught, they put it in the essays, which are almost impossible to find, even if you know that they're there on the church website. I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and said, you talk about these essays, where are they? I try and find them on the church website. 
and I have to like, you know, give them a map because they're three clicks deep. They were written not to be read, is what the church essays were written for. They were written not to be read. They were written to be there in case the church got in a tight spot and they can use it as plausible deniability. Well, it's there in the essays on the church website. So I love the Book of Mormon. I love these guys. I feel a little bit undressed tonight because I didn't bring my bulletproof vest. <laughs> Our audience didn't front you. No talking. No. <laughs> but uh, those are my thoughts. I converted to the church um, in 2014. And by the way, how much time do I have? You got three. Oh boy, all right. In 2014, I knew about seer stones. I knew about Heavenly Mother. I knew about Kolob, because I saw the Book of Mormon musical. No, I knew about that before that. It wasn't that hard to figure out. The age of the internet in which I was raised was able to cover all of this. I also knew, and know now, that we have a beautiful history of seer stones, which RFM referenced in a, in a malicious way. We know that Joseph Smith used a seer stone, and he put it into a hat. And we know that that tradition came from Europe. It came from John Dee, a counselor to Queen Elizabeth. He was the, the high-ranking member of the royal family who created the Enochian language and the Monus Hieroglyphica. He's the same person who took the Solomonian tradition from the Knights Templar that, that date themselves back to King Solomon. These symbols of folk magic came from Europe. A lot of you are looking at me like, who is John Dee? That's because they don't tell you who these people are. John Dee was one of the people who coined the term New World and was directly responsible for the 13 colonies actually coming to the Americas. We can, this is not just cutesy, crazy tarot card guy. We can actually trace how this folk magic happens and actually how it has Judaic and Kabbalistic roots. But to ignore all of that, to just focus on the cynical narrative of modern secular professors who don't want you to believe in God, who don't want you to believe in your eternal being, who don't want you to know that you have divine worth, want to throw all of that off the table and just make you think about a rock and a hat. The ring I'm wearing has a symbol that is Solomonian, coming from King Solomon. It's the same symbols that we saw John Dee have. It's very similar symbols to Joseph Smith's Jupiter talisman and things of that nature, which were part of this folk magic used to translate. If you think the magic or the weirdness or the stones of the translation negate the divinity, then you do not know history. You do not know European history, and you don't know um, a Solomonian history or Kabbalistic history. You need to look into those things because they're incredibly important, and we should not be cynical in writing off an important part of who we are. Time. You have eight minutes if you want them, and then we're going to go three-minute summary, three-minute, and we'll be back on track. Thank you, Sean. You're welcome. Uh, I think the main problem here with what Kwaku is saying is that just because he knows something about the history of the folk magic that led up to Joseph Smith using it in early 19th century America, as well as many others, doesn't somehow make it true or make it work or make it real. Unless Kwaku is actually arguing that John Dee was contacting spirits and angels and receiving real and true revelation as well. So apparently, yeah, he does. So um, I bet you uh, Elder Ballard is probably your favorite apostle since he used to sell Edsel's. Because it sounds like you'll buy anything. Um,
I got that one too. I don't know what an Edsel is. I got that one too. You ever heard of an Edsel? So anyway, no, this is the problem. This is the problem with looking upon boomers and casting them aside and not listening to anything they have to say. Because I'm a boomer in that I was born in 1960. I joined the church in 1978. A lot of these people, uh, I'm not sure about Cardin, he's a little bit older, but uh, they don't know. You see, they don't know because they weren't there in the church in the late 1970s and the 80s when all this stuff was hidden and when nobody was talking about it. And even in the 1950s when Joseph Fielding Smith, apostle and church historian, who wrote copiously, wrote about the seer stone and said, Joseph Smith did not use the seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon. And actually, he made a very good argument. It turned out to be wrong, but he was making a good argument. He said, why would God provide a Urim and a Thummim with the gold plates for the purpose of translating them, which we read about in the Book of Mormon? That's pretty much obvious, right? and still allow Joseph Smith to use his seer stone that he used in treasure digs. Why would God go to that effort and then let Joseph Smith use, I think Joseph Fielding Smith called it an obviously inferior method of translation. And he had a very good point. Of course, that would just be the tip of the iceberg because then the next issue comes up is why did the Nephites have to create these gold plates in the first place? Why did they have to inscribe on them they talk about how difficult it was to inscribe on these gold plates, and it would be difficult. And then to carry them around with them, and Moroni's got to lug them from Mesoamerica all the way up to New York via Manti, where he stops to dedicate the freaking temple, according to Brigham Young. That's a long trip when you're lugging all these gold plates. So, and then he shows up to Joseph Smith. In the evening, he shows up in the bedroom, manages not to wake up his brothers. That was good. Because only Joseph Smith woke up, his brother stayed asleep while Moroni was there in that brilliant light with the kind of sexy robe open down, you know, into the bosom. No garments, apparently, for Moroni. And, um, yeah, so all this stuff... All this stuff happens, right? All this stuff happens that talks about how critical these plates are. They have to be created. They have to be uh, lugged. They have to be buried. Moroni has to show up. He has to. And then Joseph Smith, for crying out loud, he's going to all this trouble of hiding them because everybody wants to try and find them. And I'm not sure. I don't think the church teaches even right now that the people who were trying to find him were Joseph Smith's associates on his treasure digs. And they thought, oh, Joseph Smith actually found something? Oh, well, part of that's ours, too, because we've got articles of incorporation that says your percentage, my percentage, and we need what's ours. So all this stuff revolves around it. And then to find out that Joseph Smith, when he's translating the Book of Mormon, never looked at the gold plates at all. And for some people, it raises the question, how come? Why all this trouble with the gold plates? And then it starts to sound sort of like a story that Joseph Smith made up and that many people were willing to believe. Also over here talking about boomers and generational, generational arguments, things that appeal to different generations. There's probably some truth to that, probably. But I believe that logic is not generational. And common sense is not generational. Oh, you can clap. <laughs> It was going to start, and then it just stopped. <laughs> and I think, I think that people who are uh, 24, 25, excuse me, now, 28, 38, 12, 
I think they understand common sense. And common sense speaks to people because we're people and we all understand common sense. Sometimes faith gets in the way of common sense if it is misplaced. And the problem then is that you have to argue against your common sense in order to defend your faith. I went through that so many times. In law, it's called special pleading. I finally got sick and tired of making excuses for Joseph Smith that I would never make for anybody else in any other religion or in no religion whatsoever, or Brigham Young, or whoever. And I finally had to stop and say, I'm not being honest with myself. I'm not being honest with the facts. I need to treat these people, even though I revere them as prophets, the same way I would treat anybody else. And in fact, they should be on a higher standard of behavior. They should do things better. I know a lot of times the temptation, I've been there. I was an apologist, okay, for the church. The temptation is, oh, well, we're going to make an excuse for this apostle for doing something wrong. Or like, you know, Elder Ballard. Elder Ballard says that nobody in the church, none of the leaders of the church have ever hidden anything from anybody. Oh, what a whopper. That was like four Pinocchios on that one. And we make excuses for them when actually what we should be doing is holding them to a higher standard because they're apostles of Jesus Christ, or at least they claim to be. I will say one thing that I do want to say before talking about Quaku and talking about loving other people, which I think is important. I can't speak for everybody, and I wouldn't uh, presume to speak for you, but my experience in Mormonism is that Mormonism taught me to love people, other people, in spite of who they are. And now that I have transcended and graduated from Mormonism, I understand that I can love people because of who they are. Well, I agree with Kwaku that there will always be this desire for the magic, for the supernatural, for the religious in people. I think probably predominantly if history is any indicator. But just as sure as that, there will always be an unscrupulous people there to take advantage of it and to use that in order to aggrandize themselves, perhaps with money, perhaps with fame, perhaps with sex, you know, the three biggies that the Book of Mormon tells us about. So, I think that that is always, but it's, all, it's like um, P.T. Barnum said, right? There's a sucker born every minute. And I was a sucker for 40 years. Absolutely, I admit to it. I will also say about the Book of Mormon that even though, I mean, I've read it, what, 30 times now? Know it backward and forward? have passages, many passages, memorized of the Book of Mormon. I think there is much to recommend it. But I also, earlier this year, read View of the Hebrews, which was a book that was written earlier than the Book of Mormon. And what it does is it shows what the common understanding in Joseph Smith's day and time was about the Native Americans, that they were descendants of Jews, that they came over here a long time ago, and then they became these people, this large people, Part of them were white, part of them were dark-skinned, and the white people destroyed the dark-skinned people who remained alive when the colonists were. And I realized, once again, that the Book of Mormon is exactly the kind of book that we would expect to be written in the early 19th century as a history 
of the American Indians. And I will tell you also that I hear sometimes from apologists, I mean, heaven forbid, I probably made the argument myself, that as time goes by, archaeology and discoveries tend to support the Book of Mormon more and more. Well, I will tell you, back in Joseph Smith's day, basically everybody believed that the American Indians, the Native Americans, were descendants of Jewish people. Today, nobody does except for literalist believers of the Book of Mormon. No. Oh, I do. No, no, that's my wallet. Wait a second. Is my cell phone in here, too? Oh, it is. Boomer. <laughs> I am such a boomer. And do you know when I got my airline reservations, I actually printed them out and took them to the airport, too? Here. I tell you what. If I can just... Hey, can you hold on to this? Okay. Thank you. I don't even get the boomer jokes. That's how undetached. I have no clue. I don't, I don't know why that was funny, but it was hilarious, I guess. Does this backdrop look like the Partridge Family school bus or what? <laughs> so I'm curious, just from your standpoint, because I, I really want to know this is an honest question, is if the alternative to religious traditional family is the society we're living in now, however you want to call it, how are we replacing ourselves? Because that which is not sustainable won't sustain itself. And we're there. Like, uh, actually over. But okay. I, I want to thank you so far for your honest answers and answering the questions. I really do. And it's, it's, it's going well. You have eight minutes to respond to their question. <laughs> and you. the question I gave them. Go ahead, my brother. I'm of the firm opinion that it would probably be best if a lot of our society did not replace itself. <laughs> Something also that you had mentioned, uh, Cardin, which was a classic apologetic trope, which is that when you get blindsided because the church has not been telling you stuff, has been hiding it, what was it that uh, Elder Ballard and uh, President Oak said? in that face-to-face -face devotional promo, says, oh yeah, some of these questions are really, really tough. And then uh, Elder Ballard says, those are the questions that we'll avoid. He actually said it. That's when you say, oh my gosh, I can't believe he said it. That's what they do. They avoid the tough questions. They give you the milk before the meat. The milk before the meat, isn't that funny? The funny thing is, I've lived for 40 years, they never get to the meat. It's always like that 1980s commercial, where's the beef? Well, they keep promising it, and they say it's in the temple. And then I went to the temple, and I tried to love the temple. I really did. I went there the first time in November of 1979, in Provo Temple, right after I got to the MTC. I tried, I really tried. But then, after so long, and after reading apologists talking about, no, it's not masonry, no, it's not masonry, no, it's not masonry, well, guess what? It's masonry. It is warmed over masonry. It's like there's a guy out front saying, get your Masonic rituals, get your warmed over Masonic rituals, and a program. That's really all it is. And uh, the same movie, it's not that great the first time, I gotta tell you, okay? Maybe you like it, if you do, God bless you. But it was a good thing they had people standing up and sitting down all the time, otherwise, it's Snoozeville. All right, so anyway, that's that. But, what Cardin was saying was this great trope. I got off on a tangent, believe it or not. It's perfect, okay? It's always our fault. Whenever we don't find out about stuff, 
It's our fault because we didn't study enough, because we didn't find the stuff the church is hiding from us. That's the deal. Remember the five rules that the church plays by? I can't remember them. I hope somebody here will, Bill. We're going to hide stuff from you. Then we're going to lie about hiding stuff from you. And finally, at the end, if you talk about the stuff we're hiding from you, we will hide you. That's what the church does. That's the rules they play by. So it is always our fault because it is never the fault. Nothing is ever the fault. I'm sorry, I'm getting exercised. Nothing is ever the fault of church leaders. Nothing. And we know this because the church leaders tell us that it is wrong to what, everybody? Even if, by the way, just so everybody can hear it, because I know we're recording, what everybody, I think everybody said was, it is wrong to criticize the leaders of the church. Even if the criticism is true. So it can never be their fault, which means it always has to be ours. And we wonder why there's so much depression among the Latter-day Saints, so much anxiety, so much toxic perfectionism. I won't speak for anybody else except me. And boy, did I experience it in spades. Because no matter how much I did, it was never enough. It was never good enough. And there was always talks being given, whether in sacrament meeting or general conference, that let me know there was more that I had to do in order to be acceptable to God. I know that one of these over here, one of these people, I think it might have been Quake, who was talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Within the context of the Mormon church, please don't make me laugh. The Mormon church is not about bringing people to a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about bringing people to a relationship with Russell M. Nelson. And that's it. The church is there as a mediator between the members and Jesus Christ. You can't get to Jesus Christ without the leadership of the church, without the priesthood they claim to hold, without the ordinances of salvation and the ordinances of exaltation. But what they end up being is like the very same Pharisees in the New Testament that Jesus Christ told them, not only do you not go into heaven, you forbid anybody else to go into heaven too. The leaders are not trying to be malicious. They are not sitting back there. Or was it Elder Holland who said recently in, um, oh, what was that fireside something? Oh, was it England? In London. Yeah, in London. You know, well, we weren't just sitting over there rubbing our hands this morning and thinking, what fairy tales can we tell the members of the church? Well, of course he's not. What the leaders have been doing since, well, probably since the beginning, is they are withholding, first off, they know the church is true. Let's start with that as a premise. I don't go along with people who think that, oh, they are Machiavellian up there and just going, we know this isn't true and we're just doing it for the money and the tithing and all this kind of stuff. I don't believe that's the case. I believe that the leaders of the church, just like me for 30 some odd years, knew this church was true and want to bring it to other people and want to keep members from leaving the church because your exaltation depends upon it. And the, the exaltation of converts depends upon joining the church and being faithful. Well, that's not going to happen if we tell everything that we know. That's why we're not going to tell you, speaking for the leaders of the church, we're not going to tell you the negative things of the church. Not because we're being malevolent, but because we're doing it for God. 
because only in this church can you be saved. Negative information about the church will keep people from coming in and cause people to leave. Therefore, we will tell only one side of the history, the correlated whitewashed, sanitized version of the history. And Boyd K. Packer was nice enough in 1980 or 1981 in his talk, the mantle is far, far greater than the intellect. When he was talking to all the teachers in the church, all the CES instructors, all the BYU professors, and he said it. He said, there's all this negative stuff about the church. You are not to talk about it. And you don't repeat it. It's like disease germs. And maybe you'll catch it. You only talk about the faith-promoting side of the church. And that's the context for the famous quote, not all truths are useful. And, and that was published as the first article in BYU Studies after he gave the talk. So they are on record. This is the plan. This is the agenda. And then Boyd K. Packer told all the professors and CES instructors, if you don't go along with me in hiding this stuff from the members of the church and your students, then you will be looking for new employment and you'll probably be spending eternity in a very warm place. I, I do find it interesting that you had a full eight minutes and yet still said so little about polygamy. I feel like there's a ton to say. Um, so I, I just... None of it's any good. <laughs> Sorry. Bill! Hey, uh, I, I'm a product of polygamy. I think I'm pretty good. <laughs> I think that one of the things I'd want to cover, and which we do cover on a number of episodes, has to do with social issues. And it has to do with, right now today, the reluctance of the church to accept on an equal footing in its membership gay people, lesbian people, trans people, and any other kinds of people. I'm sorry if I'm forgetting some of the, uh, the, uh, the different categories, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Every time the church seems to take one step forward, then something happens when Elder Holland gets up and starts talking about muskets. And everybody goes, what? Especially from Elder Holland. I've heard from a number of seasoned members of the church boomers how disappointed they were with what was said. Not only because of what was said, but because of who said it. They had an idea that their hopes were pinned on Elder Holland to be a moderating influence. And then he gets up at BYU in August of this year, 2021, for those listening in the future, and he starts talking about musket fire. And I know that you did an episode defending him on that. The deal is this. No, he wasn't saying, go out and get your muskets and start shooting gay people. We understand that. The deal is, is that in an environment where in the church we have got extremely fringe, right, desnat people who are very willing to take up arms against a sea of homosexuals and by opposing in them, forgive me Shakespeare, using that kind of language is not cautious. It is not prudent. And a good wise leader recognizes the fact that there are people who will hear that message and may go out and do things that the leader would never come out and want anybody to do. You've got to be careful about that. So the other thing that was talked about over here about homosexuals, I mean, I think Kwaku said time will come hopefully when homo gay man and gay man will be sealed in the temple. I think that would be great. And I think it will happen. But this is another principle of 
apologetics, one that I engaged in frequently and one which I see often, which is apologists for the church almost always create a different church than the one the church leaders teach to us in general conference. And then they start defending this fake church that they've created as if it is Mormonism and then say, look at how great my defense was. Well, the problem was that's not Mormonism. Mormonism has got to be, at least if we're looking at it, I think at its basic roots, it's got to be what the leaders of the church are teaching us today. That's what Mormonism is. And we know that because we have to follow them and not criticize them, right? That's one thing. And also, another thing that was very shocking to people was in 2015, that was when the Supreme Court case came down, legalizing gay marriage, 2015, because it was right after that that the church put in that policy of exclusion, and it got leaked on November 5th of 2015. Next January, 2016, Russell M. Nelson says, that was a revelation from God, it was received by Thomas S. Monson, and we were all of us there present and privileged to sustain that as a revelation from God. Three and a half years later, it's reversed, and that's a revelation. That was hard for a lot of people to understand. And I can understand because apparently God resembles a dithering, somewhat senile, old man who cannot see what's going to be happening as a result of this revelation he gives to his leaders. And the pain and the agony and the trauma that it caused so many people that three and a half years later it had to be reversed so god contacted them again and said hey you know that revelation they gave you three and a half years ago i've been thinking let's not do that anymore so that is something and that is something that happens in our own lifetime it's not the 125 years it took to reverse the priesthood ban which is not in anybody's lifetime you actually have to study to find that out. This, this change, people found out in real time. That was part of their lived experience. And they don't understand how it is that God could not see the future. I mean, even three and a half years down the road. That shouldn't be too much for God. I think it's too much for the leaders of the church, but it shouldn't be too much for God. Second one is polygamy. Is polygamy because I think that President Nelson, who will have Danzel, and um, Wendy, for all eternity, you know, he's got that big block from the, um, the uh, Salt Lake Temple, that big block of granite with his name on it. Doesn't have an end date yet, but um, it does have Danzel's, and it's got a place for Wendy, too. I've got a feeling that if you look really closely, there's also a place for Sherry Dew. <laughs> I'm just saying. I don't know that that's true. But yes, obviously, polygamy is going to be part of the eternities. It has to be. And the problem with polygamy isn't that it was a long time ago or it's a long time in the future in the celestial kingdom. The problem is, is that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. He had at least 33 different wives, at least. People differ because the records were hidden so well. And, right? That's why. And so they have to figure it out. And 33 is a baseline minimum. 11 of those women were already married to other men when Joseph Smith married them. And some of the men, he got out of the way by calling them, I'm sorry, God got them out of the way, by calling them on missions to foreign countries. 
Some of those, at least one, if not two, were 14 years old when a 30-some-odd Joseph Smith married them. Or was it 14 or was it a few months shy of 15? <laughs> I can never remember. But the problem is, is that when I learned about this, I was sick in my heart because I loved Joseph Smith. I revered him as a prophet. And to find out that this was actually true, by the way, good job, fair Mormon or fair because they have that great website and people go to it and they're hearing all this stuff and they, this can't be true and they go there and they find out, yeah, it is. And then they're gonna explain it away for you. It's always the yeah, but, yeah, it is true. Even Fair Mormon recognizes it, the church recognizes it, they had to put out an essay on it. And I will tell you that today when I was thinking about it, I thought about Nathan the prophet from the Old Testament. Because there was a certain guy who was a king, his name was David, and he took somebody else's wife for him. And he's got all the women that he could possibly want in the world, but he wants Uriah. Uriah. He wants Uriah's wife. And Nathan comes to him and he says, hey, I know this guy who had like all the sheep in the world. And there's this little poor guy over here. He's only got one sheep. And the guy with all the sheep in the world says to the guy with one sheep, I want your sheep. I'm going to take your sheep. What do you think about that, King David? And King David says, that's horrible. That's atrocious. That guy should be killed. And Nathan says to him, you are the man. You are the man. And that's one of the reasons it makes me so sad. Are we done? You're done. Okay, Book of Abraham was the third. Listen to Robert Rittner, 13 hours, done. <laughs> I got to say also, I, I, don't, I don't know where this don't criticize leaders of church came from. I think we're taught... <laughs> Get it out of your system. Get out of your system. This is one of the classic non sequiturs that the Midnight Mormons engage in. First off, they do character assassination on anybody and everybody who is a critic of the church. They make stuff up. It's and on I, your own show, dude. No. They make all sorts of crap up. And then they lie about it. And they trumpet it as if they have any clue as to what they're talking about. By the way... Spoiler alert, they don't. These are the people who are talking about me inciting violence? Oh no, it's not me. Oh, it's the people who are on my team. But these are the same people. The irony is rich here. I'm glad I wore some high boots. Because these are the same people who retweet a video depicting in meme form John DeLynn getting his head bashed in with a baseball bat. And they're saying, oh, we're the ones who are inciting violence. These are the people, and Quaku did it tonight, my gosh. Making up, making up. Rosebud's a lie? Hey, 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 hey. No, hey, she's, hey, she's hey, mentally hey. troubled, and you should not be taking advantage of a mentally troubled person. Well, I'm listening to her voice. No, no, Quaku, please go by the rules. We're going to have total chaos, please. Thank you. And talking about people having serial affairs based on nothing and going on your program and publicly proclaiming it as if it's fact. And then you claim that, oh, we're the ones who are inciting violence. You twist a compliment that I gave to you, which was actually sincere, twist it into a lie and then call me a liar. That's really low on the rung as far as calling John DeLynn a sex predator and Bill Real a multiple uh, serial adulterer. I think liars way down there, but it's the same kind of thing. And yet you are the ones who are saying that over here we're inciting violence.
These are difficult issues. You've mentioned difficult issues about polygamy or the priesthood ban. Difficult issue is code for an apologist, which means I can't answer that. There is no faithful answer to it. That's what a difficult issue is in mopologist or Mormon apologist speak. I know I used to be one. So the idea is if we acknowledge it's a difficult issue and we move on to something else and hopefully you won't hold our feet to the fire. So the other non sequitur is about trusting what I say about Joseph Smith. I'm not asking anybody to trust what I say about Joseph Smith or about anything else. I deal in facts. You deal in baseless accusations. Still the last five seconds. This side of the stage believes that gay people will exist eternally and that they have divine worth and that side doesn't. Okay, it's your turn. You have eight minutes to respond to that. It's all yours. I it was the Mormon church you were representing. No, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, right. No. The ones, hey, we got one too. The ones that doesn't allow gay people to get married in the temple or to be actively gay and be a member in good standing. This is what I'm talking about. They create a Mormon church that has nothing to do with the real church and then they defend it and act like they've accomplished something. It's like a reverse straw man. That's what they've been doing all night. By the way, you talked about the development of doctrine. Charlie Harrell, professor at BYU, maybe retired now, wrote a great book called This Is My Doctrine. He showed that there is not one doctrine in the Church of Jesus Christ of Mormon Church that has not changed since its inception. They have all changed. Everything's changed. Homosexuality has changed. Bill Real and I did a show a few weeks ago on Mormonism Live, Wednesdays at 620 Mountain Standard. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, yeah, and we talked about that. No, just 40 years ago, 30 years ago, simply being homosexual was a sin in the LDS church. And Spencer Kimball and other church leaders, as prophet, by the way, taught that. Now they've come to the point where, okay, mm, science is catching up. We've got to modify. Feed her to the fire. Okay, being homosexual is not a sin, but acting homosexual is. You can be homosexual and be a member of the church as long as you consign yourself to a lifetime of loneliness and being marginalized. And it's wonderful how the church says, oh, yeah, gay people are welcome. Yeah, they're welcome as long as you don't have any human relationships or intimacy in your entire life. By the way, you asked who it was who's saying that being gay, you can't get into heaven. That would be Elder Holland. You may have been concentrating so much on his musket remark just this last August that you missed the primary message, which is we have gone as far as we can in extending rights within the church and within the doctrine of the church to gay people, which means, no, you cannot be actively gay and be a member in good standing, just like now. You cannot be gay and be married in the temple. They've gone about as far as they can go. Oklahoma, right? They've gone about as far as they can go, and they're not going to go any further. So that's who it is who said it, if you want to go and look it up. The reason that the modern-day apostles and the leaders of the church cannot find any way past this homosexual issue is because the entire plan of salvation slash exaltation in the LDS church is based upon the heterosexual sex act. That's why. That's the problem they have. 
because even though really Joseph Smith didn't teach this, there may have been implications in some of the things he taught. Brigham Young's the one who picked it up and took that football down the gridiron. When you get to heaven, you have to have a wife. More wives are better because then you can be having eternal celestial sex with them because there are planets to populate and they are not going to populate themselves. So exalted beings have to be really busy forever. And as attractive as that might sound to the men in the audience, my understanding is that women have a little bit of a different view of it. And this is the problem. I did a whole show on this trying to explain, and I hope that the SCMC, the um, Strengthening Church Members Committee, which monitors me, <laughs> would take my message and pass it along to the top 15, which is that Brigham Young got it wrong. You're starting from a false premise. Joseph Smith never taught that exaltation is about eternally having sex. Maybe mortality was in his point of view, I'm not sure. But eternal exaltation was not because spirits were not, in his theology, created through sexual intercourse by divine beings. Spirits have always existed. There is no creation about them. It's in Abraham chapter 3. It's in the King Follett discourse. God could not create himself, and he could not create any of the spirits because the spirits have always existed. And God, finding himself in the midst of spirits, saw fit that he should create a way that they could advance to become like him. And if the leaders of the church today, I give this to you for free, you don't have to give me any credit. If you would get away from Brigham Young's teaching in this regard and go back to the prophet of the restoration, he has already given you the answer as to how gay people, homosexuals and lesbians can be accepted in full fellowship in this church and receive all the temple ordinances necessary to exaltation. Thank you. Do you believe the rules? Go ahead and have a little shot. Do you believe there's a God and we continue after this life? Okay, and I will answer your question and I will pose one to you, which is why is the American flag on your bulletproof vest backward? Well, what's interesting is only the U.S. military is allowed to fly the um, flag with the forward cant, I believe they call it, because that's the cant that it holds when you're flying it into battle. All the other flags, like in the Boy Scouts of America, have to have the cant facing backwards because it's a non-battle stance. So out of respect for the armed forces, if I'm not serving in the armed forces, I have it faced this way. Okay. I would think that after tonight's episode, you'd have it upside down. That's the international distress signal you're doing there, Kwaku. <laughs> we take the answer to your question. Him. He oh, was just used to taking it off and putting it upside down. Okay. Yeah. International distress signal. Okay, so here's the deal. I don't know. You've got dad joke game, brother. It's better than dad jokes. I'm genuinely yeah. funny. You're genuinely funny. Okay. Like. And 
I may be the only guy on this stage old enough to get half of these jokes, and they're good. Like, I can testify to you. <laughs> okay. That his, and I know with a surety that his three men and a baby joke and his Oklahoma reference was solid. What are you and Bill doing to balance the idea that while you don't agree with Mormonism based on the facts, RFM, my brother, what are you giving people to, to, to sustain them if they say, okay, I agree with that? Because it is scorched fucking earth. And people are ruined when we pull them out. I've seen it. Yes. So what are you doing in your ministry? And you've also seen the people who are ruined within the Mormon church. Of course. Who commit suicide on the steps of a stake center because they can find no place within the Mormon church for being gay except to be told that they are not accepted by God and they are never good enough. And they pray That's and they pray. That's not church doctrine. Wait, let him talk. It's let an actual talk. thing that happened. History. And they pray and they pray and they pray that God will change them to make them the way that they know God wants them to be. And God doesn't change them and God doesn't change them. And so finally they become completely distressed and they end it. And that happens. So it happens within the church, it happens outside the church. Right. Can I just push back and, and sure. slightly reject your push premise? Back. My, my pushback on you is the, is the idea, which I think is implicit in your question, that in order for me to criticize Mormonism, that I have to create some kind of alternative that's better. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that as my responsibility. I will say, though, that I have never, and still don't, and don't anticipate ever, having it as a goal to try and get people out of the LDS church. And I've said that a number of times. Uh, I remember the first time I was being interviewed by John DeLynn, and he kept not believing me. And he said, no, you really do. I said, no, I don't. Because I was in Mormonism, and Mormonism worked fabulously for me for the first 10 years. But when I was ready to graduate, there was no Master Poe at the gates of the Shaolin Temple saying, snatch the pebble from my hand. <laughs> Mormonism, once it gets its hooks into you, it will keep you forever running on the same hamster wheel and going nowhere. But you think you are, but you're not really. Mormonism is like a bus stop where you're waiting for a bus that never comes. That was my experience. And I kept trying and trying and trying and realizing after time, there is no meat. There is no there, there. What satisfied me and was good for me in my first stage of life was completely inadequate in my second stage of life. And there are people out there, I would say the majority of people who learn about the historical issues of the church, the majority probably do become disaffiliated with the LDS church. But there are exceptions to that. There are very intelligent people who know all the issues and know them even better than I do, who remain faithful in the LDS church. And God bless them. One of the great, great joys of graduating from Mormonism to me was no longer feeling that I had the obligation to convert other people to my beliefs. Now I simply investigate, I share. If you take whatever it is that I, I say and you think that's good, great. If you don't, that's fine too because I'm not here to convert anybody. And that's great. The other great thing about not being faithful, active Mormon anymore is on the last day of the month, I don't have to feel guilty about not doing my home teaching. 
<laughs> I mean, what these guys are representing is definitely not what you and I got. And what they are suggesting will, could go a long way in changing those old guys up on North Temple. Yes, and I hope it will. I hope it will. All right. I will, I will say, however, that what they're presenting, even though it's laced with all sorts of libelous material and incendiary and false claims, it's which make printed, it difficult. So it's slander. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so he admits it's slander. Thank you, Cardin. Cardin? He's it's almost done. I know from Kate Kelly. Yeah, it's an old one. Anyway, anyway, uh, what I was going to say is the problem is, is that what they represent, even the good aspects, were enough to get them cut off of FAIR and their videos taken down because the establishment of the church represented by FAIR could not brook the negative comments they were getting about them from more established faithful members of the church. I mean, these guys are nicer than me. I'm not going to lie. I, I don't think you actually have positive intent. And I think your lack of care for humanity and the divinity of souls has, is it's evident on your podcast. And if you Google Corbin Valuse, Stephen Anthony Richards, you defended a teenager who chopped up his sister and put her in a freezer and tried to get those records hidden from the public. Okay. I mean, I don't think you actually have a care and love for human beings. You have three minutes to defend you're yourself. That. Three minutes. Let him have Look it. it up. Google it. Look it up. This is the three-minute final. Oh, I'm not defending myself here. If you no, and I want to ask Brad a question. Brad, what are you doing hanging out with these two? I knew he was going to say that. Because... <laughs> because you should be over here with me, I think. But I will tell you, the problem right now is that you are going to be tarred with the same brush as these two, and it will not be good for you any more than it already is. I know you come across as a sweet guy. You kind of like look like Jeremy the Elf from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> I don't know? know if I should be insulted <laughs> or not. I am He's not a just guy. a misfit. So, but you're hanging out with them. Look, I'll tell you make your own decisions, okay? I'm just saying it's not good for you. Because these two engage in malicious, libelous, baseless accusations against other people who are alive and have wives and have children and who themselves are human beings. And then you get up here, and actually you do too, and talk about how I treat people like garbage because I don't know if there's a God and I don't know if life continues after this. That strikes me as the height of irony. Can we at this point agree at least to stop the whatever is happening with the videos and the accusations between you he defended a guy who chopped up his sister and put her in a freezer that's a, a great record it's a real thing that's, that's, that's a real his thing. job that's his job he's Not, a defender so listen can we agree can we agree to stop the, the videos that show a bashing of somebody and the... This 100%, I'll tell you right now, the reason why I'm able to make that full-throated on-camera... Yeah. ...saying that I will not level an accusation that is not backed up by a provable fact. I won't do any of that stuff. And I'll, I'll do my very ginger best to keep it above the belt. I'm willing to do that because I have such faith that their side won't last a week 
I'll do that. Well, let's all wait and sit. Well, I, we haven't got an agreement. I've been on the air for five years. Can we agree that we will be kinder to each other in the things that we're posting ad hominem about each other's ways and lives and approaches? We That's also, all I'm asking. I have not engaged in that. At oh. all. No. I, I would invite you to look at your Facebook page for the last week. You literally it. mocked Brad for not returning a Facebook message saying, where is he at? He's scared. When he was in the hospital with an 11-month-old newborn with a kidney 11 infection. 11-day-old newborn. You had no idea where he was. Yet you're calling him everything from a chicken to a okay, coward. So to a this, this is to why I'm moderating. a chicken or a coward. And you lie about the things I say in order to put me on the same level as you. So what you're saying then, just let me get it straight is you won't stop. He's not gonna stop. Personal it's part of his chemistry. He said he's not gonna stop. He said, I will stop as long as it's not based by fact. And by that, he means innuendo well, well, and the conclusions well, well, no, no, he reaches based on okay. zero evidence. All right, I just want to no, drive. This is a, no, this is a great yeah, question. No, and I appreciate well, hold on. Ad hominem attacks, generally taboo. We need then to Then why do you do them all the time? Even tonight. Okay, let me finish. We need to understand what they are though. Generally, if you decide to attack the person instead of the argument or the substance of that argument, it's what's called a false argument, okay? It's, it's a dodge. Unless you are calling into question the person's credibility or a conflict of interest. The Wikipedia page article has the definition on your phones when you leave. So the only time I am ever calling into question somebody's personal life is if I'm calling into question a conflict of interest or credibility. Like me I believe, hold a on. kid who committed I believe, murder? I, I, How I is disagree. that one of those? I disagree I, with Quaco on that. That's an ad hominem, isn't it? Hey, but hold on, I think it's well, hold on, let me finish. So I disagree. You're, so you're saying that I disagree with Quaco. engage in ad hominem We're allowed to disagree. That's let me finish. I disagree with Quaco bringing that up. Benjamin Franklin defended the people that were in the Boston Massacre, so I believe every person, no matter That's how John Adams. Is. Go ahead. Okay, exactly. So, <laughs> uh, my answer is Doctrine and Covenants 137. I saw Father Adam and Abraham and my father and mother and my brother Alvin that has long since slept and marveled how it was that he had obtained an inheritance in that kingdom, seeing that he had departed this life before the Lord had set his hand to gather Israel the second time. Thus came the voice of the Lord unto me, saying, All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry shall be heirs of the celestial yeah. kingdom of so God. So that's a yes too, though, because they would have received it had they been able to. Well, rece receiving, like if, to receive the gospel doesn't mean just to hear it. Those who are good people who may not have accepted or received the gospel but would have followed it in this life will be heirs of the celestial and, and kingdom I think without all we're trying any to do, priesthood or bishop oh. laying their hands on them in this life. Right. And I think it's really, really funny that we're talking about voting as establishing God's doctrine as a problem in the early church councils. I went out and I taught what I was told to teach on my mission to Japan, which is that we have a prophet on the earth today who receives revelation from God just like Moses did, and then he gives it to the people. And then over time, I started finding out that the same church that teaches that actually is also giving me hints, President Eyring, that they do the exact same thing. They get in their councils, they talk about things, it moves around the table, they continue to talk about things, eventually they all vote the same way, and that is the definition of revelation in the LDS church today from President Eyring. He was nice enough and candid enough to accidentally let that slip in a press conference. Section 137, let me just tell you something about that. Where I saw Father Adam and all these other people, including Alvin, Joseph Smith also said he saw Michael. 
in that same vision. He saw Father Adam and Michael. <laughs> that presents a problem for Mormon theology. That's why the Mormon church, when they published that revelation, took out Michael from okay. the language so that it doesn't have that problem. And it's another example of them hiding things from you. Jim. Last question for RFM. You have four minutes and then two minute rebuttal and then the five minute summation. Oh man. Most people of faith, RFM, this is a marathon, bro. if no, they're kidding. mature, ultimately admit that whatever they accept relative to their own metaphysics. I'm sorry, I was fist bumping. I know. What, you what were. were you saying? Something most, about metaphysics? Yeah, most people of faith admit. Yes. When, it, when the rubber meets the road, when it comes to any metaphysical belief, yeah. what, we can, what we can't smell, touch, taste, see right. here is a matter of faith. I mean, mo I mean that bottom line, it comes down to faith, yeah. right? And so with that being the reasonable assumption, how do you justify attacking religion from the basis of logic and reason? Kierkegaard said it's either or. You either, you either approach it through reason and logic, and that's not faith, or it's faith. Mm -hmm. So citing him, how do you justify going after people of metaphysical beliefs, even if they can't be proven through logic and reason, with logic and reason? All right, let me ask you a question, because I had you on my show. I'm not debating here. No, I just want to, but as an example, I okay. had you on my show for an hour and a half. It was last December, remember? I do remember. Did I ever once go after your beliefs in that show? You never went after my beliefs in, in that show, no. No, I didn't. You didn't. And I, I want to bring that up, number one, because I just listened to it, and I want to make sure I knew the answer before I asked you. But no, I don't. And when we had Kwaku on in April, you know, there's people on their side who are saying, oh, this is going to be a setup. And there's people on my side who are saying, oh, they're going to be trying to do something here. Uh, and Kwaku's going to be trying to do it. And I said, look, I just want to find out what makes this guy tick. I want to find out what he believes. I wasn't there to be confrontational. I think I succeeded mostly in that. Didn't I? No. Trying to find out what, oh, you thought it was confrontational. It doesn't matter. It just. Okay. Okay. But here's the thing. I think that it is very common for people who are atheistic to look at Christianity and say that the worst crimes and mass murders in history were committed by Christians. Mm -hmm. I think that on the other side of the equation, equally as bad, if not worse crimes have been committed by people who were atheists. And I'm thinking Stalin. It's not about what you believe. It's about believing that what you believe is more important than the welfare of other people hmm. that you are entrusted to look after. Whether you're Christian, whether you're heathen, whether you're atheist. And I know that uh, it's been brought up about, what is this about, um, oh, I'm, am I my brother's keeper? The thing about graduating from Mormonism and I coined the phrase and will continue to use it because it accurately describes my experience, is that it has made me free to actually care about people because they're people rather than because it's what I'm supposed to do. And it's a huge difference in outlook. I will tell you, I just want to share something very personal. I hope it's okay since Robert Rittner has passed now. You know, we had him on the show. It was an incredible experience. I was very honored that I was asked by John DeLynn to be part of the show with world-renowned Egyptologist Robert Rittner. But I stayed in contact with him after the show, and I would call him on occasion. And he was going through that kidney transplant, and we were trying to get him a kidney. Well, what happened behind the scenes, which he asked me not to share, 
was that when he got the call from the hospital, he's hanging by the phone, kidneys any, any time now. And he gets the call, goes in, and the reason why is because they tested his blood and it, he had cancer in his blood. And so the cancer had to be treated before he could go through with the kidney transplant. And it was devastating, as you could imagine, to him. But I would call him on occasion, it's not every week, maybe every month, every couple of months. I don't want to be a nuisance, but I also want to let him know I care, because I did care about him as a human being. And um, about a month before he passed, I called him and he was talking. He'd obviously gotten some very bad news, which he didn't really want to share, but he did ask me, will I be remembered? He was so worried about not being remembered. And I assured him, yes, you will be remembered not only for Egyptology, but also for many, many members of this church. And your work on the book of Abraham has been life-changing in a positive way for them. And that's when I put it up on my webpage and Reddit also ran it to get people to say what they thought about him and what it meant to him. And I directed all that to him. And he told me at the end of that how much it meant to him and that it had really settled his mind. And I did that not because it's what I'm supposed to do as a Mormon or as a Christian or anything. I did it because he's another human being and I cared about him as such and I am my brother's keeper. But the reality is you did state that you do not feel a necessity or, or you do not feel you need to drive those people whom we have taken out of the faith or shoved out of the faith to another sense of security. That's true. And I, I, I think that's just, I think that's morally wrong. What I think should that's I, morally what should I bankrupt. send them to? The Jehovah's Witnesses? Well, no. <laughs> no, it's the reality. It's the words of life. Okay. Guess what tomorrow is, Sean? I don't know. It's the 14th of November. 42 years ago tomorrow I entered the missionary training center in Provo Utah in order to commence my two months of training in Japanese so I could go to Japan to preach the gospel today was the day I flew down from Sumner Washington we got somebody here from Sumner tonight <laughs> everybody from Sumner is very enthusiastic about it you can tell but yeah, I flew down yesterday and I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about this as well. What I was thinking was, let me find this. I made a few notes because you kind of sprung that on us with the five-minute summation. And I didn't want to totally waste it. But I want to give you a guide for all of you faithful members of the church, including those who are on the stage, how not to become like me. How not to leave the church. And the main things are this. First off, don't study. Do not study. Don't look behind the narrative that the LDS Church gives you. Use only the correlated materials that you are given by the church and that you are told by church leaders to use and to not go beyond. So just use those. Stick with that. It's also probably best that you don't read your scriptures either. Or if you must, try not to think about them and what they actually mean. Also, number three, do not look behind the church narrative on any of the foundational events of Mormonism. Joseph Fielding Smith, the church historian and apostle in the 1930s, was so disturbed by the fact that the first vision account that he discovered in letter book one, the 1832 account 
the earliest account of the first vision that we know of, the one that is written in Joseph Smith's handwriting, mentioned only his seeing one being in his first vision, and that one being was Jesus Christ. It disturbed him so much that he or someone else at his direction cut it out of the letter book, and then he put it in his historian's safe under lock and key for three decades until the 1960s when word of its existence leaked to the public. The Tanners made hay out of it in the press, and under the embarrassment, Joseph Fielding Smith, still alive, was forced to have it put back into the letter book, and you can still see where it's taped into the letter book back in, in the Joseph Smith Papers Project, and then show it to Paul Chessman, who's doing his little master's thesis, so he can be the one to bring it to life. A lot of apologists say, look, it's not a big deal, okay? Just because he says he only mentioned seeing one doesn't mean he didn't see both, right? What I've got to say in response to that is that your argument is not with me, it's with Joseph Fielding Smith. Because he obviously thought it was a big deal, big enough to take it out and cut it out of a letter book and put it in his safe for three decades. Don't look behind the Book of Mormon translation. And if you find out about the Seer Stone, please don't make the connection that this is exactly what Joseph Smith was doing for many years before in order to try and find buried treasure. Better steer clear of the essays altogether, actually. I understand that those who do find them, it doesn't always go well. Yeah, don't look into the Melchizedek Priesthood Restoration, or when it was that Peter, James, and John's name end up appearing in the record, which is long after. It was supposed to have happened in 1829, and we have early church leaders who say they didn't hear anything about Peter, James, and John until like 1833 from Joseph Smith. Oh, don't look into the Joseph Smith translation and how it borrows from the Adam Clark commentary. For heaven's sake, don't look into the Book of Abraham translation. And whatever you do, don't listen to any of the 200 episodes at Radio Free Mormon dealing with just these subjects in depth, factually based, and hopefully something that we can all learn from. Thank you. We have food in the back. Can I say something? Well, I guess you can. Because you, I want to thank you for hosting yes. this event. Yes. Thanks, you guys. You have, done, you have done an incredible job. You have a wonderful place. And I want to thank all three of the Midnight Mormons for showing up. Because there was another a friend of mine who said, they're not showing up. And I said, I think they will. I said, no way. So I said, you want to bet? I said, yeah. What? Well, 100 bucks. I'll bet they'll show up. So I won, because you guys showed up, I won 100 bucks. All right! And I'm donating it. I don't want your filthy no, to the campus church. From and Cameron. I encourage everybody else to make contributions you, to this great church tonight. And I'm going to give this to you later if you don't take it well, all mail you. I cannot receive filthy lucre from Cameron. <laughs> you can get anything you want in this world for money. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. No, it's, there you go. Um, this is going to buy a big bottle of vodka tonight. <laughs> Enjoy the food. Stay. Okay. Gentlemen. I want a group hug. Oh, right now. All right. All right. right now. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Oh, okay, Thank you. I don't know which one of it is aroused, but it's not me. <laughs> oh, oh, I think we were on. You can totally lie there. Yeah. Well, from that say. far away, it must have been me. Someone here.